Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fresh doubts over the future of Richard Rogers' iconic Lloyd's Building. Marks and Spencer's contentious Oxford Street redevelopment is slammed by a new carbon report. RIBA denies Bartlett Whistleblower a photo shoot at its landmark headquarters. A new, new highway code places cyclists and pedestrians firmly above motorists. And the architecture canon needs an update, but who should it include? My name is Rachel Coppell, and I work at Open City. I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week is Andrew Waugh. Andrew is the founding director of Waugh Thistleton Architects and is an advocate for low carbon design and construction. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. One of the capital's most recognizable buildings, Richard Rogers' iconic Lloyd's Building, could soon be looking for a new tenant after a review into working practices by its original occupier, Lloyd's of London. This is a story that was covered in Sky News and comes just weeks after Rogers passed away aged 88. The revolutionary high-tech style building, which took eight years to complete, costs 75 million pounds, and has been grade one listed for the past decade, transformed the way we envisage buildings. The landmark structure next to the historic Leadenhall Market embodied an architectural style closely associated with Rogers' coined bowelism, in which buildings position their services, lifts, pipes, and ducts, on the outside in order to maximize available space on the inside. The building, heavily influenced by the work of Archigram, an experimental architectural practice operating in the 50s and 60s, became a symbol of the City of London's renaissance in the 1980s following the Big Bang reforms, which saw the financial industry deregulated and international investment flood into the square mile. The Grade 1 listed building has been the home of the insurance giant Lloyd's of London since its completion in 1986. And the insurance market, which was historically associated with shipping and played a key role in the 18th and 19th century slave trade, holds the building's lease until 2031. However, a break in the contract means that the enormous structure could potentially be looking for new occupants in 2026 if Lloyd's chooses to leave. At the start of the pandemic, Lloyd's was quick to close its underwriting room, a 7,000-capacity face-to-face meeting room, at the heart of the building. Lloyd said, quote, as we adapt to new structures and flexible ways of working, 
we are continuing to carefully think about the future requirements for the spaces and services our marketplace needs. Currently, like many other organizations, we are considering a range of options around our workspace strategy and the future leasing arrangements for Lloyd's. The review of working practices comes just six months after Lloyd's announced plans for a redesign of the building's main internal space to better accommodate flexible working patterns. When questioned on whether it planned to scrap these refurbishment plans, a spokesperson from Lloyd's said, quote, As people adapt to the new structures and flexible ways of working, we will revisit our thinking on the future of the underwriting room in 2022 to ensure our vision for the future of this space is in line with the market's needs and fit for purpose. So, Andrew, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about the significance of this building. Why is it such a big deal that Lloyd's of London may be moving out? And also, what does this building represent more widely to the City of London and global architectural heritage, especially considering the recent death of Richard Rogers, who was remembered by Lloyd's with a special ceremony on the underwriting floor? They rang the famous lutein bell, which was historically used to signal the sinking of a ship at sea just a few weeks ago. I heard about that, the bell. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing to do. Isn't that lovely? And what an absolute hero, you know, Richard Rogers was. And I kind of, you know, my whole career, I mean, I remember when I was like 10, 11 years old, going to Paris and seeing the Pompidou Centre for the first time and just being absolutely bowled over and thinking that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I come from Milton Keynes, so, you know, I'd seen some cool stuff, right? So I saw the Pompidou and I was like, this is just incredible. And when the Lloyds building um, was completed, when I just started at architecture school, and um, I remember really quite vividly coming into the city and seeing it, and it was so striking and so, you know, you said when you were first kind of like sort of starting this conversation that it was a style, but I don't think it is a style. You know, I think it's an ethos. You know, it's something that's really, you know, integral to the way that that architect was thinking, that that was really based on a kind of, on an ethos around space and technology and an aspiration for a better future. This building um, as an inspiration and as a, you know, and as a kind of, as a sort of shining piece of architecture is, you know, is incredibly important. But part of its importance through that ethos was about adaptability. And so I look forward to seeing how it will be adapted and how it will be used. I mean, the idea of taking the services, simply, simplistically put, but taking the services out of the building and putting them on the, on the outside of the building, thus allowing the interior of the building to be flexible, to be adaptable. So surely this is just part of that building's story, part of that building's history. And I think it will be exciting to see, and they might get it wrong, you know, and then the next people might get it right. And we'll see what happens and we'll see how this evolves and how this building evolves over time. Yeah. So with the future of this building uncertain and it not being clear whether the market will refurbish the underwriting room as planned or just leave the building altogether, should we be concerned about the prospect of a grade one listed building needing millions of pounds of repairs changing hands? Or is this an exciting opportunity to repurpose a really important part of global architectural heritage and open it up to more people on a regular basis? Yeah, I think, you know, definitely an exciting proposition, you know, and a test for the building. I think that I'm really pleased that it's got that kind of heritage status, that it is protected. You know, unfortunately, we're still demolishing too many 
buildings and the idea that this one might have been demolished, you know, had it not been protected, would have been appalling. Um, whether Lloyd's stay or not, I think is kind of, you know, that's relatively immaterial to me. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of, I think that, you know, this building, as I understood it at the time, was a direct reaction of the City of London to not so much to banking regulation, but to competition with Canary Wharf. You know, that it saw kind of the emergence of the Docklands and Canary Wharf and thought, oh, if we don't do something, you know, if we don't, it's kind of modernise or die. So this is the kind of like, you know, the first building of, kind of the first building of a new city in the centre of London. Late last year, we reported on plans by London architects Pilbrow and Partners to demolish Marks & Spencer's flagship store on Oxford Street and replace it with a new retail and offices complex, which it was said would be greener overall. A new carbon report by a leading environmental engineer published this week has, however, hit out at the contentious proposal claiming the demolition is inconsistent with tackling the climate crisis and directly at odds with government policy. This is a story that was covered by previous London guest Will Hurst exclusively in the AJ as part of the magazine's ongoing Retro First campaign. The plans, which were approved by Westminster City Council in November, despite high-profile criticism from a range of campaign groups, including Save Britain's Heritage, Create Streets, and the 20th Century Society, would see a 10-story mixed-use building replace M&S's largest store, which is currently comprised of three buildings at 456 to 472 Oxford Street. The latest environmental report, authored by architect and carbon expert Simon Sturgis and commissioned by Save Britain's Heritage, compared the whole-life carbon impact of a comprehensive retrofit of the well-known 1929 landmark with Pilbrow's controversial replacement proposal. Sturgis's report found that the consented rail and office scheme will result in significantly higher carbon emissions and does not comply with the government's net zero legislation. City Hall's stated policy to prioritize retrofit, nor Westminster City Council's declaration of a climate emergency. The report stated that Marks and Spencer's should, quote, examine proposals for a comprehensive retrofit of the existing buildings. They should develop a scheme suitable for ensuring a new long-term phase of life for the retrofitted, rationalized, and extended existing buildings. Went on to say that, quote, what is required is that the same level of ingenuity and design skill that has been applied to the new build proposal is also to be applied to a comprehensive retrofit scheme. Despite the fact that there will be almost 40,000 tons of embodied carbon in the new build, a whole-life carbon report prepared by AREP as part of the planning application gave backing to the replacement project, arguing it would result in a smaller carbon footprint over the lifetime of the building. Fred Pilbrow, founding partner of Pilbrow & Partners, defended the redevelopment, claiming his Tesla-like project could outperform a refurbishment of the existing building in whole-life carbon terms within 16 years. However, in his report, Sturgis rejected this calculation, saying it relied on an artificial comparison which did not even consider a comprehensive retrofit. Sturgis concluded his report saying, quote, we will make no progress on reducing built environment carbon emissions to the level required until it is recognized that demolishing usable buildings to replace them with large new build schemes is no way to meet our climate targets. So, Andrew, 
What's this all about? Why are Pilbara's redevelopment proposals so carbon intensive? Is retrofit the only way forward for a greener construction industry? Or are there ways in which we can create new buildings with much lower embodied carbon, for example, using timber frames? It's great. It's exciting that these arguments, that these discussions are being brought to the forefront. And thank you, Will Hurst, for this. And it's so important that these debates are held. You know, and the idea that we're challenging these sorts of design decisions, um, like the tulip was similarly kind of discussed in terms of embodied carbon. You know, the proposition of demolishing something and then creating something new was a really exciting, positive proposition. You know, and that's the basis of everything that we know in architecture. But that has to change. Our industry, the construction industry, the profession of architecture needs to undergo transformative change. And I think that we need to uh, be keeping our existing buildings wherever possible. You know, I think that Fred Pilbara is an excellent architect. I made models for him when I was in my 20s. And he's a, he's a great architect. He really is a talented guy. And I think that... Um, Simon Sturgis, Simon knows what he's talking about. You know, the, what you said about the design and ingenuity, bringing that to the existing building. I have, you know, I think that that makes sense to me. You know, on, um, on February 2nd, there's a private member's bill going through Parliament about embodied carbon, um, whether to bring embodied carbon into the building regulations. That's incredibly important. And, uh, you know, Simon Sturgis has been one of the people behind that. And so this kind of change in argument where actually I can see in our future, in our very near future, lots of these planning decisions being challenged on the basis of, you know, of meeting our Paris Accords on the basis of carbon, you know, and we need to start challenging those sorts of decisions in our society. You know, I've kind of been surprised that actually, you know, legal organisations like uh, Climate Earth have not started to challenge these and started to actually look at the embodied carbon. Because as you said, that you know, the amounts of carbon emissions caused by building large concrete buildings are gigantic, you know? And much as the concrete industry might try to tell us that, you know, concrete's good for you, just like tobacco did in the 80s or 90s, you know? It's like, we know that actually we can't be building like this. We can't be using these materials, you know, which we extract from the planet. We're running out of sand, you know, immense amounts of energy goes into producing this material. We have to reduce the amount of concrete we use by 50% in the next eight years, you know, to meet our Paris Accords. That's transformative change. So we need to be really thinking carefully about how and where and when we use concrete and steel. Um, we have a desperate need for new housing in London and globally. You know, our, our populations are moving, moving from, you know, from the countryside to the city. Our cities are inevitably going to expand. We need to be building high quality, decent homes for people. Um, so we need to be using timber to do that. And, you know, the UK needs to catch up with the rest of the world. You know, half our work now is outside of the UK. And the only reason we're working outside of the UK is because the sustainability ambition of the UK government is so low. It's so, you know, it is, is kind of incomparable with the rest of Europe. Even the United States, you know, has higher, certainly in the cities, you know, has higher ambition in terms of reducing carbon than the UK. 
Yeah, absolutely. So does this report suggest it could soon be getting harder for developers to demolish and rebuild, uh, especially when they haven't fully explored the relative embodied carbon benefits of retrofit? Yes, absolutely. No, definitely. I mean, and planning authorities need to be putting this into planning law, you know, into 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 local plans so that actually there, you know, that developers need to prove that they have no choice but to demolish. You know, we also need to be doing things like no more basements. I know, <laughs> you know, it's, cr- I mean, we, we built a, a big timber building recently. About half of the building's whole life carbon just comes from the basement. And we only built the basement to put bicycles in. You know, you feel like you could probably take everybody to work by helicopter and still save some carbon. <laughs> The Royal Institute of British Architects has been criticized for blocking a Bartlett whistleblower from hiring a room at its headquarters, saying it could prejudice UCL's investigation into bullying and discrimination at the leading London architecture school. This is a story that was broken in the Architects Journal this week. Last year, UCL launched an independent investigation into bullying and discrimination at the prestigious Bartlett School of Architecture after former student Eleni Kiriasu compiled a dossier of incidents witnessed by current and former students of the architecture school. The university said at the time it was, quote, aware of issues in the school for some time and all too aware that sexist and racist behavior takes place at UCL. The Athens-based fashion designer has now been told she cannot hire a small room at the RIBA's grade two star listed Portland Place headquarters because the institute did not want to prejudice UCL's independent investigation. The offer was apparently rescinded after Kiriasu had agreed a price with the RIBA events team to hire the Sewn Room, a small boardroom in 66 Portland Place, to use for outfit changes, hair and makeup, for a fashion shoot taking place outside the building. The shoot was to feature architecture-inspired clothing from Kiriasu's range, Time to Rebuild, conceived in response to the trauma she and other former Bartlett students and staff members had undergone. She had planned to have the clothes modeled by other Bartlett alumni. Kiriasu said the RIBA's decision left her feeling as if whistleblowers and survivors of abuse were not welcome, going on to say that, quote, I'm disappointed with the RIBA, who, rather than accepting my booking as an artist and fashion designer, have sadly proven to be somewhat paranoid and backward in their decision to decline me. Kiriasu continued, I was not even asked to show snapshots of my work. They declined me purely because of who I am and because I said other survivors would be involved in the shoot with me. Their rejection borders on shaming survivors for coming forward. That's how it feels. In response, RIBA Chief Executive Alan Valance told the AJ, The RIBA assesses all venue hire requests on a case-by-case basis and reserves the right to decline bookings. We decline this opportunity as it related to an ongoing investigation into the welfare of individual students. So, Andrew, what's this all about? The Royal Institute of British Architects, RIBA for short, is a professional body set up to champion better buildings, communities, and the environment through architecture and its members. The headquarters is a landmark in London's West End and is frequently hired out for all kinds of commercial and charitable bookings. 
recent events at 66 Portland Place have, for example, included the Wolfson Prize set up by conservative peer Simon Wolfson and organized by the right-wing think tank Policy Exchange. Is Curiosity being unfairly singled out here, denied support, and treated differently from other campaigning bookers in the name of objectivity? Should the RIBA be more picky or less about who gets to use its recognizable venue? This is a, you know, it's, I've read some of what Eleni has said, and I have to say it didn't sound alien to me. You know, I've witnessed that both as a tutor and as a student. I mean, what's appalling is that nothing seems to have really changed in architectural education in that long, you know, those sorts of attitudes, and that we are still not educating architects to be able to kind of you know, to do their job when they complete their five-year education for masses of debt. You know, I think that architectural education is in a really sorry state. You know, so look, there are two issues for me here. One is that, you know, the RIBA represents the whole profession. And I think that it's, you know, I kind of understand that they need to wait. While I've read what Eleni has written and it seems so familiar, I still think that probably an awful, and it feels so, sorry for the woman, it's, it's, it's terrible. I, I still think that probably the Bartlett needs to be allowed to do that before the, you know, before a building that represents the whole profession from students to professionals kind of is drawn into the into it. What this highlights for me more than anything else is just kind of the state of architectural education. The fact that now that students have to pay fees over five years and living expenses, it really um it changes it changes it all. It changes the nature of the it changes the opportunities for so many people in architecture, you know, and limits, you know, limits the kind of the sort of the person who's able to study architecture, the background from which they come from. And I think that that's appalling. I think that actually, you know, perhaps the only advantage is to say now a student is a client in a way, you know, of the universities and the universities need to be treating those clients with perhaps more respect, seeing as they're paying for that education. And so I think that that could be the only advantage of the fee paying sort of situation is that change in dynamic. And yet we're not seeing it. And you know what? It's not like that anywhere else. You know, I, I teach in other countries and it's so much more progressive and so much more encouraging. Um, so, yeah, time for change for sure. Absolutely. This latest debacle comes just weeks after the RIBA launched a competition for a £20 million comprehensive refurbishment of its George Gray Wernham-designed headquarters intended to transform the 1934 complex into a new cultural, learning, work, broadcasting, and members hub. The project will deliver welcoming, open, and dynamic face for the institution and create four new gallery spaces. The refurb is all part of plans by new RIBA President Simon Alford to make the Institute a generous host at the center of architectural discourse and culture. Will this big cash injection help mend the rift between architects and their representative body, or are there other simpler or braver approaches RIBA could deploy to make the space more inclusive and welcoming? I guess this also begs the question, uh, if if this student is indeed a part of the community, should we not also be, be welcoming her into this larger space? Yeah, definitely, I think we should. I definitely think we should, and I think we should be welcoming all students into the RIBA. And I think that, you know, I think what Simon's doing, actually seems like 
a really exciting proposition for the RBA. I think it's kind of like, I think he's coming with an incredible kind of confidence and um, assertion about the need for change. You know, so actually the idea that it becomes this kind of, I think Simon's calling it a house of architecture again, is great, you know, and that should be something, you know, a place for debate for students, for professionals and professors alike, you know. So I think it sounds exciting. I think it sounds ambitious. And, you know, architects need to be at the forefront of change here. There is a, there is a real dire necessity for debate in the profession and in the construction industry. New changes to the highway code, which will come into place this Saturday, will see cyclists and pedestrians given more priority on the UK's roads. This is a story that's been covered across the media with explainers in The Guardian, Independent and Mirror and could significantly transform the way many of us move around the congested thoroughfares of London. The Department for Transport has announced three major updates to the highway code, the mandatory rules for all road users, which together place greater responsibility on drivers to protect the safety of pedestrians and cyclists. While never explicitly mentioned in previous versions of the Highway Code, motorists usually presume cyclists to remain close to the curb. In this latest edition, it is recommended that cyclists ride in the center of the lane to make themselves more visible in certain situations. A new requirement has also been introduced banning drivers from cutting in front of cyclists, i.e. speeding up and overtaking, when turning into or from a junction, a tactic which inevitably forces cyclists to brake or slow down and can be quite scary. In addition, an order of road hierarchy has been implemented within which different vehicles will be ranked according to their capacity to cause harm or injury. For example... Drivers of heavy goods, passenger vehicles, and vans are now ranked highly and will have the greatest responsibility to reduce the threat or danger to others. Another alteration to the highway code has been devised to create more obvious priorities for pedestrians, particularly at junctions, and to clarify where they have right-of-way over other road users. Specifically, cars and cyclists will be required to give way to any pedestrian waiting to cross at a junction they are turning into or from. The same now applies for zebra crossings and pedestrians and cyclists on a parallel crossing. So first, I actually want to ask, do you cycle to work? I do. Yeah, I do. I cycle to work nearly every day. I don't cycle very far to work, I have to say. I cycle about five minutes to work. So I'm, I'm daily terrified by bicycles. Um, a lot of bikes around with, you know, with batteries, which have been deregulated, kind of like zipping down pathways at 30 miles an hour. I mean, it's pretty scary and pretty horrific. Um, and I think certainly something needs to be done to address that. However, <laughs> I'm very pro-cycling. I am, you know, I think that um, what, the, what the mayor has done in London in terms of kind of promoting cycling and reducing traffic and traffic congestion in London uh, is fantastic, is fabulous. I hope that we go the way of Berlin, you know, and take cars out of the centre of London um, and promote cycling. But, you know, with great change comes great responsibility. And I think the cyclists need to, you know, there have been some tragic events, uh, you know, um, around where I live and, you know, a dog killed on the canal by somebody cycling into, I mean, people cycling at great speed down the towpath and the canal. So I think that, you know, we've closed lots of roads down. 
you know, to promote cycling. So cyclists need to use the roads. <laughs> we talk a lot about London's extraordinary architectural heritage on Lundown, but sometimes we take the famous names like Christopher Wren or Zaha Hadid for granted without actually asking how and why they became so influential in the first place. Big famous architects who shaped the skylines of cities like London are often described as being a part of the architectural canon, the authoritative list of big-hitting designers of the past that every architect, planner, or landscape professional should study. It's a sort of academic or intellectual grouping that now more and more people agree is do a refresh. But who should make the cut? Calls to include a more diverse cohort of architects, urbanists, and thinkers in the canon have gathered momentum across the world with many forward-thinking academic institutions now earnestly re-examining who their teaching focuses on and why. But while a consensus for canon rebooting has clearly emerged, the question of who to drop and who to keep is still hotly debated. In the first of a series of landmark Accelerate debates held at the amazing Rich Mix in Bethnal Green on Wednesday, the 2nd of February, Open City will be chairing a discussion between some of the most interesting speakers in London architecture today. We have Bushra Mohammed from Studio Niali, Jane Hall from Assemble, Hanif Kara OBE from AKT2, Farshid Musavi, Ellis Woodman, Director of the Architecture Foundation, and many more. For this debate, each of our speakers will outline one practitioner they believe is essential, brilliant, and useful enough that every architect of tomorrow should know their name and work. There will be no more hand-wringing over whether the canon needs a refresh. On February 2nd, we will decide once and for all who's in and who is out. Tickets are available on our website at open-city.org.uk slash events. Don't miss out. So, Andrew, who would you pick to join the canon of architecture greats. This is such a tough one. This is such a tough one. I kind of like, you know, I'm sort of, um, I hoover up the work of other architects. I'm like an architecture fan. And also, you know, when you asked me this question, I thought, you know, what's really important, what's really important is to actually to kind of like, to challenge the kind of the middle-aged white manness of, of everything that's gone on in architecture and to kind of like, you know, and then I noticed that somebody else had chosen Minette de Silva and then somebody else had chosen Lena Bobardi. And I was kind of like, I think that that's, you know, desperately in need of challenging that we have a more diverse understanding of architecture in a, in a sense of gender, but also in, in, in globalization and also, you know, just in background. But having said that, I've retreated back to a kind of like, <laughs> to not do So um, please forgive me for that. But um. I am reading at the moment uh, Buckminster Fuller, Critical Path, and I am fascinated by, you know, his life, his work, and his process, you know, his approach to work, I think is really, you know, that kind of more with less sort of um, approach to sufficiency, understanding the kind of, understanding the impact of design not just on a, in a social sense, or an aesthetic sense, but also in a kind of, you know, in a planetary environmental sense. And he was talking about these sorts of issues, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, 100 years ago, you know, as a kind of like, as an understanding of an approach to architecture. The work that he's kind of best known for is the geodesic dome and uh, prefabricated um, structures. So these geodesic domes, these kind of mathematical three-dimensional tessellations, uh, of structure are really 
really interesting, really beautiful. But what's more interesting to me is actually just the approach and the process and the level of ambition to which he, you know, to which he approached these, these problems, these issues of, of prefabrication, of construction, of material use, of adaptation, of kind of, you know, and just that he saw construction, architecture, not just as a, you know, not as a kind of narrow field, but as kind of an all-encompassing kind of social duty. And I think that that's really relevant to now. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Andrew, how can our listeners keep up to speed with your projects and your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Instagram, um, uh, LinkedIn, um, not Facebook, I don't think, anymore. Facebook? Is anybody on Facebook anymore? Facebook's over. I thought that was, yeah, right? I think it's just MAGA, isn't it, on Facebook? It's <laughs> so, Rachel, you've been asking me all these questions. What's going on at Open City this week? Well, thank you for asking, Andrew. Obviously, the most important thing in the calendar is our Accelerate debate on Wednesday, February 2nd. But we've also just started accepting applications for the Baylight Fellowship, which is an experiential learning program for ambitious housing commissioners who want to deliver outstanding homes of the future. Uh, and you can probably get your boss to pay for it. Uh <laughs> Plus, we've got lots of tickets available for a year-round range of exciting walking and cycling tours. Another thing, I'm going off script here, but something that I want to plug is our Pocket London subscription because I got signed up for it. And it is so lovely. You get a little envelope in the mail and it comes with a gorgeous map of a new neighborhood each month. And you can take a walk around and find hidden gems. And it's just so nice to get something in the mail that isn't a bill. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I love the sound yeah, of that. It's, so it, and that is also available on our website. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.